Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you. Keen observers will notice I'm not walking very well today, so I'll go ahead and get that out of the way. I uh, had a couple of minor operations on my feet a couple of weeks ago, and I thought I'd be all good by now, but I am not. So (laughs) uh, still slowly recovering, and that is why I will be sitting up here today. Uh, But we've got more important things to talk about, and we're going to get into the book of Acts again today, which I'm really excited about. Before I do that, though, I want to welcome anybody that's new. We're really glad you're here. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd love to get to know you and meet you afterwards, so come up and say hi if you can, and hello to everybody watching online as well. Thanks for joining us today. I want to let you know that in a couple of weeks, we're going to have our annual meeting here at the church where we go over the budget and... And we want to do something new this year that I think is going to be really exciting. We're going to have a focus area for the next year of ministry for our church. And and this might be something we start doing annually. I'm very excited about it. I know a lot of our staff are really excited about it and our elders and would love for you to be there for our annual meeting on the 5th. So please, if you're a member, make sure you join us for that. And if you're there with us in person, we even have a special gift for you. So if that's not enough to entice you to come out, I don't know what it is. And it's not a bookmark, okay? I know know it's it's not even made of paper. But we, we would love for you to be there with us. If you're a member here, you can learn about the budget, vote on the budget. You don't have to be a member to go. Uh, But to vote, you do need to be a member. And we're gonna introduce something that I think will be really special for us for the next year as a church and some things that we can focus on and rally around together. So today we're gonna be in Acts chapter eight. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to it. We're gonna start in verse 26. But before I do, let me just kind of give a little context here. Uh, Last week, John talked about Philip's journey through Samaria and how he was teaching and sharing the good news about Jesus in Samaria. And we're gonna pick up on that today and and we're gonna see a story of Philip sharing about Jesus with uh, one specific individual. So there's lots of generic teaching about sharing about Jesus in the New Testament. And then there are those little snapshots where we get a story of one person's life and the difference that it makes learning about Jesus. And it makes me think of different times in my life where I've had opportunities to go around and share about Jesus and travel to do so. And there have been many of those. One time when I was a teenager, I went on a missions trip to New York City, and we were trained in doing street evangelism. So we were trained to, you know, you had the paper flipboards, and you could marker and paint on them and do all sorts of different things, and then go out and talk about Jesus with people. And every night, uh, we would recap and debrief, and how many people did you win to Jesus, and how many people did you win to Jesus? And I started to get the impression that this was, this was something that was very dependent on me to be able to convince people to get to that point of prayer and make sure that, that you know, they were convinced and persuaded and that I had to get them to that point. And, th- and that's what my value would be that night at the meeting to the team was, well, how many people did you convince to say the prayer and trust in Jesus? But is that really how it works? Is that how any of this is supposed to happen? Well, I want to show you something from this story of Philip and what he does with a man that he gets to share the gospel with. We're going to start in verse 26 of Acts chapter 8. And it says, as for Philip, An angel of the Lord said to him, go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Candake, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk alongside the carriage. 
Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? The man replied, how can I unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? So beginning with the same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. As they rode along, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the carriage to stop and they went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Meanwhile, Philip found himself farther north at the town of Azotus. He preached the good news there and in every town along the way until he came to Caesarea. Let's pause, take a minute, and ask God to bless the reading and study of his word this morning. Father, we thank you for these words written down by Luke some 2,000 years ago so that we could read about the incredible stories of the good news being brought to people for the very first time. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to learn something from it. Help us to see something in Philip's journey today that we can relate to. And Holy Spirit, would you uh, illuminate this to us so that we can understand how to better live out this week the, the new life that you have given those of us who trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So Philip has just been sharing the gospel throughout Samaria. John talked about this last week in his message. And you'll remember the Samaritan people were not well-loved by the Jewish people. It was thought that the Samaritans, though their ancestors were Jewish, they were the ones that were left behind in the land when other Jews were carted off. And the Jews that were taken away by conquerors actually remained pure and continued to only marry other Jewish people. And so their bloodline was pure all the way down. And when they returned, they found these Samaritans who they were convinced had intermarried with the Gentiles who had moved into the land. And so now the Samaritans were considered half Jewish or partial Jewish, and which wasn't very good to be Jewish at all. And, and they had their own way of worshiping that had been adapted over the years because of their inability to worship the way they would have in the past and the restrictions placed upon them. And so there was all this animosity that existed between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. And Jesus, you may recall from other stories, went in and, and ministered to the Samaritan people as if there was no distinction at all. In fact, at one point he said, look, the time has coming when worship isn't going to happen where you Samaritans worship or at the temple where the Jewish people worship, uh, but it's going to be in spirit and truth and in people's hearts that the worship is going to happen. So Jesus broke down that barrier, and then you see Philip, his disciple, continuing that along by then spending time in Samaria teaching people, and at some point, an angel shows up to Philip and says, I want you to go down to the road south of Jerusalem. So Samaria is north of Jerusalem. You head down to Jerusalem. And then there's this road, this desert road that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza, through Egypt, down to Ethiopia. And this would have been the way to travel between all those different countries. But it does not appear that the angel gives Philip any other information. Who is he going to meet along the way? Why does God want him to go there? What is he going to do? What's the outcome here? Philip doesn't know. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He just has to be obedient to this little bit of information that he receives. And this brings us to the first of a few points that I want to share with you today, which is that God points us to the next step. God often just points us to the next step. 
we can learn that this is true for Philip because after he gets to this road and he's traveling along it, the Spirit gives him the next step, which is what? Go over to that chariot over there and, and run alongside it. Doesn't even tell him who's in it. Doesn't tell him what he's supposed to do, what he's supposed to hear or anything. Just, I want you to head over to that. It's just the next step in the journey. And then it's, it's by overhearing what this Ethiopian is reading that Philip must have something clicked in his head and he went, oh, this is why I'm here. Well, this is amazing. He's reading from Isaiah. And their conversation begins and the Ethiopian invites him up into the chariot. Now, I find that this is just often true in life. For those of us who follow Jesus, God does not give us the whole master plan. He doesn't even give us the next week's plan. He often just gives us the next step, right? And isn't that annoying? I mean, doesn't that bother you? It bothers me. Like, I want to know the plan. I want to know what's coming next. I want to know the outcome of this, especially if I'm going through a difficult time in life or I'm faced with choices and I'm uncertain of which choice to make. There's an opportunity in front of me and I don't know, is it good if I follow this? Is it not good? I want the whole plan. I want to know exactly what, what is happening down the future. And yet, it seems that God likes to just give us the next step. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One would be, that oftentimes the value is in the journey, not just the destination. There's value in the journey and not just the destination. The destination is important, but sometimes what we would learn along the way in the journey by not knowing the destination can actually be better than just knowing the outcome. Recently in my house, we've gotten used to uh, watching more football than we used to. And my kids like to watch the football game. And, and for a while, they would ask me to put on a game and... Um, Sometimes if there was a live game going on, I would put on a live football game. And other times if there wasn't a live game, I would just put on a highlight video. And I love the highlights because you, you watch three hours worth of football in 15 minutes. And it's like every important play from that. It's, it's a lot of fun. But my kids weren't always certain, what did I just put on? Is this, and so they would ask, dad, is this happening now or did this happen already? And the reason that they sometimes wanted to know this was because it makes a difference who you root for. If the game has already happened, then you just want to know who won the game because that's the team I'm going to root for. But if it hasn't happened, then there's still a chance that my rooting might make a difference or something like that. Knowing the outcome changes the journey and it changes what you do along the way. And so I think a lot of times the reason why God does not give us the destination is because he's got things for us to learn through the journey that we may not enjoy, but it's actually better for us if we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future. And the second reason that I think God doesn't always give us more than the next step is if he did, where would faith be? Where would trust be? The God of the universe is the only being in existence that knows exactly what's going to happen in the future. I, I actually believe that he's outside of time, that, that, that he knows the beginning and the end. He says, I'm the alpha, I'm the omega. He has demonstrated throughout scripture that he knows exactly what's going to happen in the future and that he he has control over it and influence over it. And he can predict things thousands of years in the future. In fact, a lot of times I think that's what Bible prophecy is all about. It's not there so that we can read prophecy and predict what's going to happen. It's there so that after it happens, God can say, see, I told you, I knew exactly this was going to happen. You couldn't predict how, but now looking back, do you see how this all points to me and what I was doing in the world? I had a plan. I knew it was going on. You can trust me. And I think that's what a lot of Bible prophecy is about. God wants us to trust him even if we don't know the outcome. 
And if the being that knows everything and knows what's gonna happen in the future goes ahead and gives you the outcome, well, then you're no longer trusting in him, you're trusting in what you know about the future. And yet there's something to be said for the relationship and the closeness that develops from having to rely on and trust that God knows the outcome and knows he's got good things in store for you and will work it all out for good to those who love him, the Bible says, even though you don't know what that good necessarily is. I think that's why God often just gives us the next step. And he gave Philip the next step and then the next step and Philip was just obedient to it. The next thing I want you to see from this story about Philip is that God plans the opportunity to share. Did Philip plan this? Not at all. Did Philip arrange this meeting with the Ethiopian? Nope, this was all God, not Philip. In fact, Philip was invited to be part of something that God was already doing. God was already at work in this and he invited Philip to come in and have this amazing opportunity. One of the reasons why I think that sharing our faith with others can be so nerve wracking sometimes is because we feel like there's a lot of pressure on us. We feel like we have to sort of, if we're gonna do it, cram the gospel into conversations where it's not natural. But the Bible never gives us that idea at all. It doesn't tell us we're supposed to try to, to force it on people. It actually says that God is preparing and working in the world and that it's God's mission that we get to be a part of, that God is doing things and preparing opportunities just like he did for Philip. In fact, Ephesians 2, 10 says, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. God is already at work in the world. He's already setting up opportunities for you to do good things, for you to share about him. And the question is, are you gonna be open and receptive to that and then obedient to follow through with it? Not are you going to go out and make it happen. It's not up to you to go force it and to go cram it in. God is creating these opportunities. Are you receptive and open to it and willing to step in? You know, the truth is that I've seen times Many times in my life where I think it's clear God has orchestrated an opportunity. Some people call these divine appointments. Like you'd have an appointment on your calendar that you set up with a doctor. Only in this case, it's God's appointment for you. And you don't know the details. It may just happen suddenly. And there's this opportunity to share about your faith with someone who's struggling or asking a question just like this Ethiopian was. I don't understand something that's going on in life right now. You know, I've been there. And it's, t it's tough sometimes. Here's what gets me through it. And there are these opportunities that God creates for you. I've had many of those in my life. And to be just very honest with you, there have been times where I have had those opportunities and I just haven't, haven't taken advantage of them. I haven't stepped into them. I, I've, I've seen it. And even in the last year, there have been times where I've recognized after the fact, wow, that was a chance for me to step in and do something good or share with someone something that God had, had set up an opportunity and, and I just didn't do it. But that's what Philip did. He didn't know all the details. I'm sure it was un a little uncomfortable and maybe unnerving to have to go out on this limb like this and leave what was evidently a great ministry in Samaria and head out on this other journey that's gonna lead to something so different than what he had planned. But he was willing to step into it. God prepares these opportunities for us. And the question is, are we, are we looking for these opportunities? Are we willing to step into them when they're put in front of us? And that's what Philip did. He was obedient. He didn't know the details. He goes south of Jerusalem. He's on this road. He meets this Ethiopian who is described in the biblical text as a eunuch. And I wanna touch on this briefly because some people have made a big deal about the fact that this was an Ethiopian eunuch. You may have 
heard it taught or preached before, read something about how this is such a big deal because he was a loner and he was an outsider and an outcast. And, and the story, I've even heard uh, some pastors and teachers say, you know, a lot of people make this story about Jesus or about Philip, but it's really about the eunuch and what an outsider and outcast he was. And this speaks to the outcast and the outsiders. And the reality is we, we just don't know if that's true at all. This was a high-ranking official. I don't know if he was an outsider. He evidently had a very prominent position in the government. Some people have made a big um, thing about the idea that he was a eunuch and that he maybe was a physical eunuch. Um, Some people have even said that this is uh, the biblical legitimization of transgenderism. Or one professor put it this way, God chose to birth the faithful African church through a queer person's body. And so they have taken this Ethiopian official to be, well, he's, he's a eunuch, and so he must be queer, and so we're going to validate our, our views with this uh, in Scripture. But that is not in the biblical text at all. In fact, if you look throughout antiquity, scholars are divided about whether this man was even a, a physical eunuch, because the phrase eunuch could just be used for a high-ranking government official. Now, it's true that sometimes these high-ranking officials were physical eunuchs, uh, which meant that they could not have children. They had, you know, surgical operation to remove their ability to have children. Why would they do that? Well, a king or a queen would not want one of their high-ranking officials to have any incentive to off them and set up their own dynasty. And that's how it typically worked. In kingdoms, you, the important thing was that you had children, progeny, that would carry on your dynasty. And so there was way less incentive for you to usurp the throne if you had no one to hand it over to you, if you weren't building a legacy for yourself, if there was no dynasty. And so it would reduce the, the risk, as it were, for officials to want to take over uh, a kingdom if there was no dynasty for them to leave. They were, they were essentially in agreeing to this role saying, I agree, I will not have my own children and I will not create this risk for the kingdom. And so it's possible that this man was a physical eunuch. It's possible that this was just a title that was used for him, which appears to happen other times as well. The bottom line is we probably shouldn't make too much of the fact that the Bible calls him a eunuch and say, well, he was a lonely outcast and an outsider. And this is an example of triumph over that. That's not what the story is about. Story is not about an outsider and, and a, a, a lonely person and someone who is some sort of sexual other finding acceptance through Jesus in whatever their otherness is. That is not what the story is about. The story is about the life-changing message of the good news of Jesus, and it's about how that conquers sin, not how that validates someone's lifestyle choices. At the same time, there is a, a valuable note to make here about the fact that Philip's journey demonstrates that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel message is not limited to a certain subset of people. He just spent all this time sharing with the Samaritans who the Jewish people did not care for, and yet Jesus opened that door and his disciples walked through it. And now Philip has been sharing the gospel in Samaria, and then an angel says, now I want you to go down here. I'm not gonna tell you why. And he ends up sharing the gospel with a a full Gentile. He spent all this time with what are presumably partial Gentiles. We don't know for sure, but at least they were treated that way. And now he's with a full Gentile Gentile sharing the gospel with him. And so it doesn't matter your heritage, your, your past religion, your ethnicity, your skin color. That's one thing we certainly see from this story, though it's not the main point. The gospel is for every single person, regardless of all of that. This Ethiopian official at some point in the past had learned about the Jewish God, probably from Jewish people who were in exile, 
as the, the Jewish people were dispersed through uh, various conquerings of their territory, it's probably at some point that this man encountered some Jewish people, learned about the Jewish God, and decided to believe in him, kind of like Ruth did when people left Israel, and, and she learned about the Jewish God that way and decided to trust in him. Probably the same thing for this Ethiopian eunuch. And so he goes to the temple, makes this pilgrimage there. While he's there, he purchases this scroll of Isaiah. He had never read it before. This was new information to him. And so on the way back to Ethiopia, he's reading it in his chariot and thinking, wow, this is really interesting stuff, but it's confusing. I don't know what's going on here. And we see through this journey of this Ethiopian, something special that God was doing. And this is point number three, God prepares the hearts of others. It's God that prepares the hearts of others. Through whatever circumstances led to this man worshiping the God of the Jewish people, and then through his visit to the temple, and, even, and then the prophecy of Isaiah, and even the, the choice to purchase this specific scroll. It's a scroll of Isaiah, which has all these prophecies about Jesus that are relatively clear. God was preparing this man's heart for the conversation that was about to happen with Philip. There's this common misconception I find in Christianity where we think that missions and evangelism is the task that God has given to his followers. And that's only partly true. It's not just the task God has given to us. It's actually God's mission and God's task and what he is already doing and working in that he invites us to be a part of. He didn't have to use Philip in this way. It could have been another disciple, could have been another believer that he chose to use. It could have been some other path that God chose to make this happen. And yet he invites Philip to be part of what he was already doing in this man's heart. God had already been working with this Ethiopian official to prepare him for this. And Philip is just there to step in at just the right moment because of what God did. Jesus said in John 12, that after he died on the cross, he would draw all people to himself. He said in John chapter six, that for people to come to him, the father would have to draw them. In John 16, he says it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict the people of the world of their sin and of God's righteousness. So if sharing your faith with other people is scary because you think that's a lot of pressure on you, that you have to win people to Christ or convince them, that's just not how any of it works. It's God that's working to prepare people's hearts. It's God that's setting up the opportunities. It's really God's mission that he invites us to be a part of. A lot of people fear rejection when they share their faith. Do you remember when Jesus sent out the disciples two by two into the different villages? The, the series, The Chosen, just covered this in a beautiful way. And the disciples go out two by two, and they're sharing the gospel in different places and performing miracles and doing amazing things. And Jesus warned them, hey, some of these places are probably going to reject you. And when they reject you, what did he tell them? I want you to stay there with them until they're convinced. If you know the story, you know that that's a lie. He said, if they don't listen to you, if they reject the message you are bringing, what are you supposed to do? Shake the dust off your feet and move on. You're supposed to move on. A lot of the pressure that we feel in sharing our faith is, what if they reject the message? What if I wasn't good enough in how I communicated it? What if I didn't have the right words? What if I didn't have the answers to their questions? And so I'm just not going to do it. Because I fear that rejection. And Jesus said, oh, they're going to reject you. And when they do, you shake the dust off your feet and you move on. 
In the missions world, this is called finding a person of peace. You're finding people that are peaceful and receptive to the gospel message. And if they're not a person of peace, then maybe they're just not ready yet. And that's okay. Because your job is not to convince them. Your job is not to prepare their heart. Your job is not even to create the opportunity. Your job is to be obedient to it as God shows you those places, those opportunities you have to share. You are responsible to do the good that God has prepared for you. You're not responsible for the outcome. It's God's mission. And we just get invited to be a part of it. And that should be a very freeing thing for us. That should take away that feeling of anxiety that we get when we're gonna share with someone because the outcome is not up to us. And so that's not something we have to worry about. And that leads us to the climax of this story with Philip and the Ethiopian who is confused about what he's reading. He's just come back from the temple. He's been worshiping God there and he's got the scroll of Isaiah and he doesn't understand it. How can I understand this? And Philip, a guy who is the disciple of the one prophesied about in this scroll with Isaiah is right there next to his chariot running alongside him. How amazing is that? It's a, it's a miracle. And then he invites Philip to get up in and and share the good news with him. And Luke records this story for us. And so I want us to take a look at exactly how Philip shares the gospel with the Ethiopian. I think this will be really enlightening for us. In verse 35, Luke says this. So beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. And that's it. We don't get five points of an evangelism method. We don't get the Romans road laid out for us. I would like to see the way of the master somehow worked in here. There's no evangelism method that we get recorded about what Philip said to this Ethiopian man. And that is very unsettling to me. Because if I just knew what was the approach Philip took, then I could just use that every time and expect the same results. But that's not how it works. And I think there's a reason why God does not give us these clear evangelism methods in the New Testament. Oftentimes it's like this. They shared the good news in a variety of different ways. We don't have the full story. It's a condensed version of it. And it's because there isn't one way. There isn't one method or one approach. And sometimes we get locked into those. We get locked into a method and we think, oh, this is the formula. This is the pattern. It's what produces the best results. You've got to do it this way. And I've even heard people critique other people uh, pretty severely because, oh, you use that method. That method's not very good. You've got to use my method. But the Bible doesn't say that. And even here, we don't get Philip's method. Other than he started with Isaiah and he showed him how Jesus was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. And I'm sure he told him why Jesus needed to come, what Jesus did, and what that means for this man's life. And what were, what were the bullet points? I don't know. But the conclusion of it was this man believed in Jesus. Methods for sharing your faith can be really helpful. It can be nice to have a little bit of a roadmap, a little bit of an outline to follow. Be careful not to make the method the main thing. Be careful not to think that if you don't have a method memorized, you can't share about what Jesus has done in your life. There are lots of different ways and methods and approaches that God uses to reach people to become a part of his kingdom. And it's not necessarily on you to have a method memorized or to know the answers to everyone's question along the way. Sometimes in those conversations about Jesus, the best answer you can give is, I don't know. 
to a question that they may ask that may have stumped you. It's better than making something up. Sometimes it's even better than giving an answer which is technically true, but doesn't really give them all the information. Well, this is what I think, but I'm not 100% sure. Why don't we get together and talk about this again and I'll go look into it? That continues the conversation. That can be way more valuable sometimes than just trying to come up with the answer or giving a short answer. Sometimes the relational aspect of evangelism is what we miss in the methods that we dig into. Nothing wrong with methods. And if you've got one that works for you that you love to use, that's great. I love them too. I've memorized a bunch of them. I've been trained in many of them. I've trained others in many of them. One way that I like to think about the gospel is what I call the six pillars of evangelism. And the reason I like this is because I spent some time many years ago looking through scripture, trying to identify what are the core elements of the gospel message. If I were to boil it all down to like the most important fundamental parts, what would that be? And let me at least have those. And I've taught that here in the past from this stage, and I'll, I'll share it with you briefly again now. The first pillar is God. God, the creator of the universe, the creator of humankind. God created everything perfect and good. The next pillar is man or humans. Humans rebelled against God. They actually committed the sin of treason against God, and that treason came with consequences. And, and they wouldn't have the ability to actually love and choose to serve and follow God if there weren't the ability to reject him. And, and it wouldn't make any difference if there weren't consequences. And the consequence of that was what we call sin. Sin that would continue on with all of their children and their children's children. And sin entered into humanity through the rebellion, the treason of those first people. And that's the, the third pillar, which is sin. Sin which separates us from God because God is perfect and he is holy and he can't have any sin with him. And yet he wants us to be part of his family again. He wants us to be restored to him. And so how is that going to happen if our ancestors sinned and committed treason and part of the consequence of that sin was that that would enter in and all of their children would be stained by that sin as well? Well, that's where the fourth pillar comes in and that is Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is God, part of the Trinity, comes down to earth, lives a perfect life, and dies on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to pay the price for our sin that we couldn't pay. But then he didn't just stay dead. He rose from the dead three days later to conquer death so that he could be what the Bible calls the firstborn among many brethren, so that he could be the first one to conquer death on our behalf, and then he could be our savior to help us conquer death as well, the death that we deserve, not just physical death, but the spiritual death brought about by sin where we spend eternity apart from God in a place called hell. And so Jesus not only died, but he rose again. Resurrection, that's the fifth pillar. He rose again so that we could have a living Savior who represents us before God, almost like a lawyer represents you before a judge and says, no, 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 this is paid for. This is covered. This is taken care of. Every time you sin, though we should not, every time we do, if we've trusted in Jesus, Jesus represents us before the Father and says, I paid for that. That's what he did for us which leads us to the sixth column, sixth pillar, which is freedom. We can have freedom from not just sin, but freedom from the consequences, the ultimate consequences of our sin because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And it's not just freedom in the future. It's freedom that we feel now. In fact, whether or not you truly live in that freedom and rest in that freedom depends on how closely you're walking with God. You may not always feel like it, but if you've trusted in Jesus, you have a freedom that can benefit you now and can free you from burdens and, and from the burden of sin today, not just in eternity. Those are the six pillars 
of the gospel, the essential elements when we boil it down. Now, is that exactly how I would walk through it with someone if God gave the opportunity to share faith today? Not necessarily. It depends on the situation and what they're going through in life right now and how Jesus speaks into that. But those are the core elements that I would at least want to understand and be able to communicate to them just like just like I just did, just adapted for whoever that person is. There are lots of methods, lots of different ways we can share. The important thing is to be willing to share and to not be afraid of rejection and not be afraid that you're somehow gonna mess something up. I have heard some pretty rough presentations of the gospel lead to people trust in Jesus. And it has caused me to shake my head and go, how? He completely misrepresented that and you just decided you're gonna follow Jesus. Okay. Great, God works in mysterious ways because it's not about you. It's not up to you. It's not your job to convince. It's not your job to prepare the situation. God is already at work in his mission. He's already doing things just like he was with Philip. And just like Philip, you're invited to be a part of it, a part of what God is already doing. That leads us to point number four. God provides the way to freedom. It's God that provides the way, the path, to freedom. We see it all over Philip's story. Philip's not the star here. The Ethiopian is not the star here, even though some people try to make him the star of the story. It's God. God is at work here. It's God's mission that Philip gets invited to be a part of, just like you and I are. And we know from our reading of this story earlier that this Ethiopian accepts the message about Jesus, this way to freedom. He believes everything that Philip is telling him about Jesus being the fulfillment of the prophecies in Isaiah. And Philip, obviously, during this journey from Jerusalem all the way down to Gaza, this long desert road leading toward Egypt, has told him about baptism and what it represents and what it it signifies. And so at some point, the Ethiopian comes across water on their journey, and he says, hey, why can't I be baptized right here? And he orders them to stop, and they get down, and he gets into the water, and Philip goes down and baptizes him in the water. And I always thought, hearing about this story as a kid, that it was probably the Ethiopian and his driver and Philip. And so just a very small group of people here. But then I realized much later that this is a high-ranking government official. Do you think he was traveling by himself or just with one driver all the way from Ethiopia up through Egypt, up through southern Israel, up to Jerusalem, and then back down that journey again, when we know from other biblical accounts and other historical records about the robbers that would be lying in wait along the roads to and from Jerusalem and other places, do you think he was traveling alone? Not a chance. This is a high-ranking government official, the treasurer, the minister of finance. You think the minister of finance is traveling without an entourage? No way. He's got multiple drivers. He's got people in the caravan with provisions, supplies for the journey. He's got guards who are riding alongside. There's a whole crew of people. Who knows how many? Could be 20, could be 50 people in this journey to make sure he gets from A to B and back to A safely. And that whole team of people is now watching their boss step down out of his chariot, carriage, whatever it is, get down into the water in an act of incredible humility and let Philip, this Jewish man, baptize him in the water, dunk him underneath. Do you think that made an impact on them? All those people watching this? This wasn't some isolated baptism that happened where only Philip and the Ethiopian knew about it. This was a testimony to whoever was on the journey as well. 
maybe even other passers-by on the road. I mean, this was a, a main road that you would travel on. And so this was an act of testimony to say, I am doing this to commit my life to Jesus. This man who's just taught me for the last couple hours on this journey from Jerusalem, I believe and I am all in. And this is not just something that I'm into today. This is not just what I'm reading this week. This is something that's gonna change me for the rest of my life. And so he gets down there and he gets baptized and these other people on his team see this. And then what we know from history and even archeology span is that the Ethiopian church then grew dramatically. Even recently, they've uncovered ruins of churches that, that date back to very early times, 200 AD and, and so forth. And so the Ethiopian church grew dramatically. In fact, this was a place that people, Christians from other parts of the world would go to study and learn more about God and more about their faith. They'd go down to Ethiopia, a place where Jesus never physically walked that we know of, a, a, a place where there's not any great historical significance as far as the the apostles and what they did. And yet this was a place where Christianity thrived, probably because of this Ethiopian official and his commitment to Jesus and Philip's obedience and his testimony through his baptism to the people around him. Probably a, a number of those people went back, believed in Jesus and became missionaries to their own people. Which then of course leaves us with Philip. What happens with Philip? Well, after the Ethiopian was baptized, he comes up out of the water. And I've only ever, uh, my only context for this is the show Star Trek. When they punch the button, energize, and, and they disappear, right? And you get that little effect that happens. And so in my mind, that's just what happens with Philip. Is he, this little stardust appears and he disappears, or maybe he fades away while he's waving or whatever. And he ends up being teleported to, he the Bible says he finds himself in uh, Azotus, which is current day Ashdod. It's on the southern coast of the Mediterranean Sea in Israel. And he finds himself in Azotus. And then the Bible says that he goes on this journey from Azotus all the way up to Caesarea, which would, Caesarea Maritima is further north, uh, much more north on the coast of Israel. And he's preaching the good news about the gospel every way as he goes. And we don't even know about those stories. Are there more people that believed in Jesus along that journey? I'm sure there were. We just get this one little story about this Ethiopian official. But there were countless other stories, amazing things that we won't even know the details of until eternity when, you know, hopefully we get that big old documentary on all the stuff that the Bible didn't cover. And I think it's amazing that God did something so incredible through Philip and then said, now I've got another whole big thing for you to do. Like he had this, this ministry in Samaria and God said, I'm moving you on from there. And I don't know if I were Philip, I'd be like, but things are going really well here, God. We got a great thing going. No, I want you to head down south of Jerusalem. I've, you have no idea why or what you're gonna do. And then it turns into this amazing story of God working and Philip doesn't even know at this point what's going to happen in Ethiopia because of this encounter that he was obedient in, this opportunity that God set up, the mission that God was working on. And then God has this huge, big thing planned for Philip next, where he's gonna go from Ashdod all the way up to Caesarea and share with hundreds, thousands more people the good news of Jesus. What an impact that must have had. I don't know if you have ever been teleported by God. I have not. But I do know that God pushes people into seasons of greater ministry all the time. And he's got greater ministry in store for you if you'll step into it. This is what he does. 
He gives his children gifts of his grace so that they can minister and serve other people. And he uses them in different ways, sometimes surprising, sometimes unexpected. He often gives us only the next step and we don't know what it's gonna mean or what it's gonna look like. Sometimes he takes us from something that we think is thriving and successful and brings us to a place where it seems humble and like the impact is minimal only to then open the door to something else that's big and incredible that he's doing through us. And our role is not to set it up. Our role is not to know what all is going to happen. Our role is to trust and obey, trust and obey. What's the next step? God, I wanna be faithful to it and trust you with the outcome because it's not about me. And I want you to think about Philip's story today and think about how your story relates to Philip's story because I'll bet you can see some things in there that, that align with things that you're going through. Maybe not today, maybe in the past, but maybe today, I don't know. Where are you at today? Are you exactly where God wants you? Are you serving in the way God wants you to do? What's the next step for you? Is there a next step? And, and you know, maybe for you, you're just right in the center of God's will and you're doing things that you know you were made to do and it aligns with your gifting and it's awesome. But maybe not. And if, and if it's not, then you're who I'm talking to right now. What is the next step that God's been communicating to you? Are you looking for that? Are you open to it? Are you asking for it? God, I don't need the whole plan but would you show me the next step of obedience that I can take? Understanding that it's God's job to do the preparation and you just get to be a part of it, a part of that mission. Where are opportunities for you to share your faith? Where are there chances for you to share about Jesus and have you shied away from those because you feel like, oh, there's so much pressure on me and there's a lot that I have to do and I have to convince people, I have to win them and what if they reject me? And none of that is what the Bible says. The Bible says it's God's mission. You are invited to be a part of it. Where are there chances for you to share about Jesus with people that maybe you've been avoiding? What would a greater season of ministry look like for you? And again, this probably doesn't apply to everybody, but I'll bet there are some people out there who are sensing that God is, is prompting them to move into something new. And Samaria has been great, but there's this scary road south of Jerusalem. And I don't know what God has in mind there, but it really feels like he's leading me on to something different here. And so maybe he just wants you to step out in faith and be obedient to whatever that thing is and see what he will do along the way and watch him open doors to ministry and impact that you never could have imagined. Do you to deal with a lot of anxiety in your life? Do you deal with a lot of impression, a lot of loneliness, a lot of isolation? Do you deal with a lot of fear in your life? Try devoting your life to serving other people and to following God's leading and his mission and see if that changes your perspective on things away from yourself and onto him and onto others. I wanna invite you, if you would, to bow your heads with me now and let's pray. Ask God to work in our hearts based on this story of Philip. Father, we're thankful for Luke's diligence in interviewing many people so that he could write down these stories for us so we could understand how you worked and how you moved 2,000 years ago from our perspective couple of days ago from your perspective. God, thank you for recording these things so that we could learn from them. And I pray that they would make a difference in our lives today. I pray that every single person here in this room or watching online right now would be able to see elements of Philip's story and your working and his faithfulness and your faithfulness that would just touch our hearts. Help us to, to live the way we need to live this week, to be looking for those opportunities to do good in your name to be recognizing that it doesn't rely on us. It's not about us. 
It's about you and your mission and what you're doing. And thank you, Jesus, for letting us be a part of it. As imperfect vessels as we are, let us be a part of what you're doing. Help us to have the boldness and the courage to be obedient to it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.